together to worship, and this morning we'll be uh, looking at the building up of the church. The church in Acts chapter 9 experienced a time of peace, and during that peace they were, they were built up, they were edified, and so uh, we've gathered together to, uh, uh, to worship our Lord Jesus Christ and to uh, be built up by the, the teaching and preaching of His Word. And so uh, that uh, we'll be back at this passage a little bit later. Ephesians chapter 4 will be our call to worship this morning as we see God's plan for the building up of the church. It involves every, every member doing his part, every one of us. And so at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, will be our call to worship this morning. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor-teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray together. Lord God, we have uh, gathered together this morning to, to, to worship you, Lord, and to give you praise for who you are. Lord, we praise you that you are our creator and sustainer. sustainer. We praise you that you are our redeemer. And Lord, we praise you for the beauty and the glory of, uh, of the church. And thank you that you have established your church, a community of faith, a family of uh, of faith, that we can come together, gather together, and offer you our worship. And Lord, if we're, we can come together and gather together for our building up, uh, to be encouraged, to be admonished, to be edified as we gather together to worship. And Lord, we just thank you for that plan for uh, the body of Christ under the head Jesus. And Lord, we give Jesus praise this morning for who he is as the head of the church and the, the savior of the church, the one who gave himself up for her to present her to himself as a radiant, glorious bride without any spot or blemish. And so, Lord, we gather together to worship the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that your spirit this morning would grant us grace to worship in spirit and truth, Lord, that, uh, that our hearts would be tuned toward you and that the desire of our hearts would be for you to be exalted for you to be glorified and lord for us to be built up to be strengthened to be matured in our faith as individuals and as a body as we come together uh, being built up in christ jesus our lord and it's in his name we pray amen right i'm going to invite you to take out your hymnal this morning and him to turn to him 637, hymn 637, we celebrate the fact that we are able to gather together in worship this morning, hymn 637.
We gather together to ask the Lord's blessing. He chastens and hastens His will to make known. So we continue to worship this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. Looking at the exploding church. As the church has... Uh, exploded in Jerusalem and grown and the Lord has added to their number those that were being saved and when the persecution broke out under uh, under Saul after the death of Stephen the church was scattered and exploded throughout Judea and Samaria and today we will see that the churches in Judea and, and Galilee and Samaria experienced the time of peace and so here the exploding church uh, has a time of peace and we will look at uh, how the Lord used that time of peace to prepare the church uh, for the battles that were to come. They've been in great battles and now there was a lull of time of rest and relaxation and reconstitution and edification of uh, preparing them for the battles that were to come. And so in Acts chapter 9 verse 31 we'll begin our text this morning. Acts chapter 9 verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Jesus said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful that we can gather together this morning around your word. Lord, we're thankful for the freedom that we have to come to worship and the freedom that we have for each of us to bring our own copy of your written word for us. And Lord, we're thankful for the freedom that we can come and have your word proclaimed. Uh, we have the freedom to read. We have the freedom to preach and to teach and to be edified by the, by the speaking, the sending forth of your word. Lord, we pray that the sending forth of your word this morning would be blessed by your Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would teach and build up and that we would all mature and grow in our faith and be strengthened 
and encourage this day. Uh, Lord, build us up individually and build us up as a body. Build us up as a church, a spiritual house. Lord, help us to use this relative time of peace to be edified, to be strengthened, and to be prepared for the battles that might be to come. Lord, bless us as we study your word this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to this passage, Acts uh, chapter 9, verse 31, we know that as we've been going through the book, of, the book of Acts, Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will provide some narrative describing what was happening in the life of the church, and then he will give some summary statements to kind of summarize the things that are happening as he makes a transition. And we see that summary statement in uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. The churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And so this is kind of a summary statement of the, the life of the church in between the, the big narratives, the big events that he is describing. And we have talked about the fact that in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is kind of an outline for the book of Acts. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, who are, are now known as apostles in the, in the book of Acts, that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They would receive power, and the Holy Spirit would come upon them, and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that verse really forms an outline for the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1 uh, through, through 8, we see that the church is primarily centered in Jerusalem. They are being witnesses in Jerusalem, and God is blessing the ministry of the church and adding to their number those that are being saved. And the church was prospering in Jerusalem, doing pretty good in Jerusalem. And uh, uh, it wasn't until the death of Stephen and the persecution that broke out, led by Saul, the persecutor, Saul, the hunter of the church, and the church then had to scatter out of Jerusalem. And they scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, and they preached the gospel everywhere they went. And so because of the uh, persecution under the leadership of Saul, the church was scattered and, and, and forced to be witnesses in Judea and Samaria. The word of God was like a fire burning in them. They couldn't see, keep it silent. And wherever they went, they preached the gospel, but they uh, had been content. They didn't go to Judea and Samaria out of a sense of duty, but out of necessity in order to escape the persecution. And so in Acts chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, we kind of see the, the ministry in Judea and Samaria. That's where we find ourselves today. We see Peter traveling throughout different villages in Judea and Galilee and Samaria and showing that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is alive and he's at work in the world through his, his, his people and through the Holy Spirit and through his church. And also in this passage, it's transitional in that we are being prepared for the ministry to the ends of the earth. We have seen the conversion of Saul, who will later be named Paul, and who will be the apostle of the Gentiles. And then in chapter 10, we will see the conversion of the first fully Gentile people in Acts chapter 10. So this passage is kind of transitional as we are seeing the ministry in Judea and Galilee and Samaria in preparation for the launching of the missionaries who will take the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. 
And so we set, we, that's, that's kind of where we are in the book of Acts, and we see this summary statement of the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and we see that there is now a time of peace. Saul, the persecutor, has been converted. Saul, the one who was uh, instigating this great wave of persecution against the church, breathing out threats and murderous threats against the church, and even traveling as far as 150 miles to find anyone who is a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ, to arrest them, to bind them, whether they were men or women, male or female, bind them and bring them to Jerusalem that they might stand trial. Well, Saul the persecutor uh, was converted miraculously uh, by God's grace on, on the road to Damascus. And his persecution, of course, stopped. But then the church in Jerusalem realized that having Saul, uh, the former persecutor, in their midst didn't solve their problems because now the people that he had run with, that he had uh, been with in the persecution of the church, were now trying to get him. And so uh, we talked about last week, the brethren found out about this plot, that they were trying to kill Saul, and they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So that now that Saul the persecutor had been converted, and then Saul the persecutor had been snuck out of town, the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. Now that word peace means that there was an absence of conflict. There was a pause in the persecution of the church. There was a time where they were settled, where the opposition had been, uh, been quieted. Saul had been converted and then gone away, and now there was a time of peace. So, you know, there is a time. There are times that God in His grace will lead us to the green pastures and beside the still waters. Even though we live in enemy territory, even though we are to be strangers on this earth, even though when we come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, we declare war on Satan, and Satan is the ruler of this world, and Satan and the world fights back, and we've seen that in the book of Acts, we'll see it again in the book of Acts, but from time to time, there are operational pauses, there are times when, when the battle kind of wanes a little bit, and there are these times of peace and rest and tranquility. And here we see, we get a good lesson. What should we do during those times of peace? You know, there are temptations that go with being in the middle of the battle. There are temptations that go with being hated. You know, we've talked about the fact that the church can be tempted to, uh, to kind of put the opposition to rest by compromising with them, by going along with them, by obeying their, their unlawful orders. You know, the church could have been tempted to, 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 to achieve peace a false peace by giving in to the rulers that were commanding them not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. They could have compromised with them. They could have obeyed man and not God and, and had a time of peace. And so during, during conflict and during persecution, there are great temptations to, to compromise and try to achieve a false peace through, through surrender or through giving in or through compromise. And we saw that the church resisted that temptation. And they were obedient to God and not man, and that resulted in more persecution. But now there's a time of peace, and there's also temptations that go with, with times of peace. 
You know, when things are going good and when we're comfortable, when we're laying in those green pastures beside the still waters, you know, we're tempted to become lazy and complacent, just fat sheep uh, eating the, the, the green grass and drinking that still water and thinking everything is good and pleasant and uh, we can become lazy and complacent and, uh, uh, and rest in our own safety and security and refuse to or uh, just don't feel the need to cry out to God because everything's going pretty good. There are temptations that go with times of peace as well. But we see here the church took advantage of their time of peace. What happened to the churches in Judea and Galilee and Samaria during their time of peace? We see that they were edified. They were built up. They took this time, this time of peace. They took advantage of it and they built up. They were strengthened. They were matured. They grew in Christ's likeness during this time of peace. And, you know, we and uh, churches in America, you know, compared to churches around the world, we, we experience a great time of peace, and we should not allow that to make us lazy or complacent. But we should use that time to be built up, to be strengthened, to be matured, uh, knowing that this peace is not a lasting peace. It's simply a lull in the fighting and that more fighting is to come, and there will be fighting until the day that Jesus comes and rescues us and takes us out of enemy territory and takes us to our Father's house. And so what should we be doing in the, the times of peace? Well, the church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria were edified. They were being built up. Now, this word means building, like building a house. And this is a great metaphor for the Christian life and for the church. And we're going to look at that. I, my, my plan was to do this whole text today, but then I got to that, that word edified. And I thought about that and thought, you know, that's a church word that we throw out a lot, that we use, and we talk about the preaching of the gospel to evangelize the lost and edify the saved. It's a word we throw out, but how often? have we really sat down and took back and, and looked at what that word means and talked about it. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, the, the rest of the outline of the passage, so this is a, uh, an expository topical message. We see the word edified in its context, but we're going to look at a summary of what it means to be edified, to be built up in the faith, to grow in strength and maturity in Christ's likeness. Uh, but how was the church edified in this passage? The outline of this passage, they were edified. Uh, how were they edified? Well, they were walking in fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplying. Not were they just be, being built up uh, in strength and maturity, but God was adding to their number, those that were being saved, just like in chapter 2. And then they were exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, showing that Jesus was alive and still at work in the world through His people, through His church, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the outline of this passage. But today, I want to zero in on that word edified and talk about what it means to be built up again. The word means to build a house, to build a dwelling, to build a structure. And that's a beautiful metaphor for the church, uh, for the Christian life, and for the church. Uh, you know, we are to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We are to be careful how we build. And also, it is a metaphor for the church because we, like spiritual stones, are being built together in a spiritual house. So let's just summarize what the Bible speaks about edification, knowing that as the church experienced a time of peace, a lull in the battle, instead of being lazy and feasting on the green grass and sipping the still waters, we need to take advantage of this time to be being built up, to be 
maturing in our faith, to be growing in strength in Christ's likeness. So when the battle comes, we might be able to resist the temptations that come with the battle and that we might be able to stand and have victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's talk about what it means to be edified, to be built up, to be strengthened in the faith. In the faith. And, uh, you know, uh, again, the, the metaphor is the building of a house. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 talks about the building of our spiritual house, the building of our spiritual lives like building a house. Building a house, the, the spiritual life. We're building a house, and, and the first thing that we see about being edified is the, the house has to be built on a strong and firm foundation. We just sang the song, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And that comes from a, a, an image that Jesus shared in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. In, in, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have the, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gathered his disciples to himself and allowed the crowds to come in and overhear what he was teaching to his disciples. And he preached this sermon. It took him probably about 20 minutes there on the, on the mountain, the hillside outside of, um, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He taught his people. And then he concludes the sermon with this illustration, this metaphor. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And so the first thing about building our spiritual house, building our life, is it's got to be built on a firm foundation. It's got to be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And we know that this was the conclusion, the concluding challenge of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had preached, and now he was calling for a response. He was calling for the people to do something with the Sermon on the Mount. He was calling on them to hear his sayings and do them. And so this was the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, the invitation, the call to response. I have given you my words. You need to hear them and do them. You need to build your life on the foundation of the teachings of Jesus. The first step in edification is to have a firm foundation. The first step in building our spiritual house and strength and maturity is to build it on the foundation of the words of Christ. And so since this is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, to proper understand it, we've got to understand the Sermon. And you know, the Sermon on the Mount began with the Beatitudes. The first words of the Sermon on the Mount are, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so the first step in our edification is to recognize our poverty of spirit, our, the fact that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we don't bring anything to the table, we don't bring anything except our mess and our sin. We are bankrupt. We are poor and needy. We are totally dependent upon God's mercy and God's grace. Even the very next breath that we take is a gift of God's mercy and grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the, those that recognize that they bring nothing to God except their sin and their brokenness and their need. It is the poor in spirit that are blessed by God. It is the poor in spirit that will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And then Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. They're broken over their poverty of spirit. They recognize their sinfulness and their need, that they bring nothing to the table, that there is nothing about them that would cause God to accept them or, or like them, much less love them and welcome them into his home. And so they're mourning over their sin. They're broken. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so they recognize their poverty of spirit, their spiritual need, their spiritual bankruptcy, and it leaves them broken. They mourn over their sinfulness. And then third, they're meek because they recognize how desperate they are. There's no pride, there's no arrogance, but there's a brokenness and a meekness when they recognize the extent of their need and their, 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 their sin that has separated them from God. They, there's no pride, there's no arrogance, because they recognize their poverty of spirit, their sinfulness, and so therefore they are humbly dependent on God's mercy. They're poor in spirit. They're broken over their sin. They are humble because of their spiritual need and their sinfulness. And then they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They see their need, they're broken over their sinfulness. They recognize they bring nothing to the table except, except need. And they humbly come, and yet they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for a right relationship with God. And as Jesus goes on with the sermon, they see that that righteousness cannot come from themselves. That righteousness cannot come from self-effort. They can't just work real hard to overcome their spiritual poverty. They can't just turn over a new leaf, lift themselves up by their own bootstraps. They can't just, just, just get religion and attain that level of righteousness because as Jesus goes through the sermon, he tells them that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You will never see the kingdom of God. Now to these people who are listening to the Sermon on the Mount, the scribes and the Pharisees are the most religious people they know, the most morally upright people that they know, the, the, the people who do the most works, who have the most effort, and, and who do uh, the most to avoid breaking the law of God. These are the professional religious people. They spend their whole life studying the law and applying the law to every aspect of life and looking down their noses at everybody else who's not as good at keeping the law as they are. They even make additional rules and regulations and set them around the law so that there will never be a chance that they might inadvertently break the law of God because they've made so many man-made rules and regulations around the law of God that they can't even get close to breaking the law of God. And so the ones who are hearing this, they say the rights. My righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the most morally upright, law-keeping, religious people that I know, the best people that I know. My righteousness has to exceed theirs. How is that possible? And so Jesus is showing them that they are hungering and are thirsting for a righteousness that cannot come from within them. And as the sermon progresses, he makes that even more clear. Because the scribes and Pharisees, you know, they're focused on outward performance. You know, they would never dream of, uh, of murdering someone. That's a violation of the Ten Commandments. That's a violation of God's law. 
And so no matter how angry they became at a person, how, how bad they were, they would refrain from murdering that person. They would not perform the outward act of murder. But Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother without cause, or if you've caused him a fool, called him a fool, you are in danger of the judgment. The scribes and Pharisees would never dream of committing the act of adultery. They would even uh, go, go to great extremes uh, to protect and prevent them from committing that act. But Jesus says, well, if you've even looked at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people, boy, they would, they would keep their oaths. If they made an oath, they would not violate that oath. But Jesus says, you need to be the kind of person that doesn't have to take an oath in order to be believed. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus says, a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the most religious people that you know is somebody who doesn't demand his rights. But he gives himself away for another. He does not desire to get even, but he is gracious and merciful. If someone slaps him on the right cheek instead of getting even, he turns the other cheek. Jesus says the person uh, with that kind of righteousness is not a person who just does the minimum amount to get by, but it's a person that will go the second mile. Jesus says the one who is righteous doesn't just love his neighbor, but he loves his enemies. And so as Jesus went through the sermon, it became clear that the righteousness that is required is a righteousness that cannot come from within. You can't do it from your self-effort. You can't do it through your activity. You can't do it through becoming religious. It's not about outward performance, but it's about a change of heart. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was focused on outward activity and not the change of heart that can only come from an act of God as He makes us alive. And so Jesus presents the picture of true righteousness. A righteousness that cannot come from self-effort, but only comes by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so how do we be edified? How do we build a spiritual house? How do we build a, a Christian life that will withstand the, the rain and the floods and the winds of this life? That house has got to be built on a strong foundation, the righteousness that comes not from ourselves, but is a gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we continue to read through the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus became a man, and Jesus, Jesus fulfilled that righteousness. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He lived a, a life more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, a life of perfect righteousness. And you know what? If, it, if, if, uh, if, if you didn't get the point about the outward performance without the corresponding heart change, Jesus just shows us that you can't attain that righteousness in Matthew 5.48 when he says, you want to work your way into heaven, you want to get into heaven by keeping the law, you want to get into heaven by your outward works of righteousness, here's the standard, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, you know what? Jesus fulfilled that standard. Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness. And then Jesus died on the cross to satisfy God's wrath 
against the unrighteous, against those who could not live according to that standard. Jesus died on the cross to satisfy God's wrath, and so our sin was laid on Jesus so that His righteousness can be laid on all who believe, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead proves it. And so edification begins with justification, begins with salvation as, as God credits sinners who come to Jesus in repentance and faith with the righteousness of Jesus because their sin was laid on Him and judged at the cross. And so if, we gotta build, if we're going to build a spiritual house, it's got to begin on the strong foundation of Jesus Christ. And then the second thing about building a spiritual house, building a, a Christian life that will stand the rain and the floods and the winds of this life, the attacks of the enemy. Uh, we, we build on a strong foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ. And then the second thing we recognize is we have got to be careful how we build. We've got to take care in how we build. Not only have to take care in the foundation and, and, and building on the rock, the foundation of Jesus and his words and his teaching, hearing his words and keeping his words. But once that foundation is laid, we've got to be careful how we build. And Paul says exactly that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He talks about laying the foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, and then he challenges us to be careful how we build on that foundation. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Be careful how you build. It's got to be built on the strong foundation, the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. But as we build on that foundation, as we build our Christian life, be careful how you build. Take care in how you build. He goes on to say, For no one can lay, uh, no one can lay any foundation other than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So as we build on that foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, we've got to take care in how we build. We want to build a spiritual life that will not only withstand the, the, the wind and the floods and the rain of this life, but we want to build a spiritual life that will withstand the fire of judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. Be careful how you build on that foundation. If you build things with human wisdom and human effort and things of the flesh, or the outward performance like the scribes and Pharisees in order to be seen and recognized by men, that will be burned away. It will be shown for what it was. It was human. It was temporary. It was fleshly. But Paul says be careful how you build. As you build on that foundation of Jesus Christ, as you're built up in the faith, be built up with things of eternal value, God's wisdom, and a desire, a heart's desire to see Him glorified and to do that which is pleasing 
in His sight. Build on that foundation. Be careful how you build. We don't want to just build a, a, a life that will stand the storms of this earth, but we want to build a life that will stand the fire of God's judgment. And we will receive rewards. Not to be seen by men. Not just outward performance. But from a heart that loves God and desires to see Him glorified and honored and a desire to do that which is pleasing in His sight. And so how, do we, how are we edified? How are we built up? How are we matured? How are we made strong in the faith? How do we build a, a life, a Christian life, a spiritual house that will endure and persevere? Well, it's got to be built on the right foundation. As we build on that foundation, we've got to be careful how we build. Build with things of eternal value and not things that are temporary and will be born burn away. And then third, building a spiritual life, a spiritual house, is a group project. Now, you know, when I was in school, I absolutely hated group projects. <laughs> I, I did not like group projects. I hated being put in a group because I'm the kind of guy, you know, that I am a planner. And when I get the, 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 the outline for the course, you know, I will plan everything that I've got to do. I will plan it out, and I will work throughout the semester a little bit every day so that at the end of the semester, the last day of the semester, I can go to sleep. I don't have to pull all-nighter and do all my work and get everything in. You know, I am a planner, and I like to break things into their part, and I like to do the little parts going through so that on the last day of the semester, I can go to bed early. And I'm also a perfectionist. I like a very high standard. And it's inevitable that when you get put in a group project, you're always put in a group with somebody to whom D stands for diploma. <laughs> and they're okay with that. I'm not okay with D for diploma. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a perfectionist. I'm an overachiever. And so anytime I'm put in a group project, I usually end up doing all the work and letting the rest of the people in the group benefit from my work. And so when I think of a group project, I immediately think, oh, that's not a good idea. But you know what? My sanctification is a group project. My edification is a group project. I'm dependent on y'all for my edification, for my sanctification. And y'all are dependent upon me. We're dependent on each other. Our edification, our sanctification is a group project. We lay that foundation on Christ. We're careful how we build. And you know who helps me be careful? You help me be careful. By coming alongside and encourage me and admonishing me and warning me. Edification is a group project. It requires every single member of the body working together for the building up of one another in love. We read it in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, uh, earlier. Edification, building a spiritual house, building a Christian life that's going to withstand the storms of this earth and that's going to withstand the fires of God's judgment is a group project. And we all need to be involved, and we all need to be involved from the beginning to the end. Don't wait to the last day and pull an all-nighter. <laughs> we need to work all the way through this time that God has given us to be built up in love. We saw it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. He gave himself some apostles. We see how the apostles are important, laying the foundation for the building of the church. There are prophets that are speaking the Word of God before the writing of the New Testament. There are evangelists like the Apostle Paul going to places where the gospel has not been preached and planting new churches. 
And there are pastor teachers in each of the local churches. And the pastor teachers are, are there to, to shepherd and to teach and to feed the flock and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so it's a team effort. We need the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers all coming together. But look at the role of the pastor teachers. It's not just the role of the pastor teachers for the edification of the church and the teaching and the example, which is an important part, but that's not all that they do. What else do they do? They equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Equip the saints, the saints, all believers, all who have been set apart for God by grace through faith as members of the church. All, every one, it is a group project. And so the pastor's teachers are there for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of Christ. And, and, and then he goes back to the image of Matthew chapter 7, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried out with every wind of doctrine. And so we're, we're in a group project. To create houses, to create lives. It won't be blown away by the wind and the floods and the rain of this world. We won't be led astray by the trickery of men, the cunning, the craftiness of deceitful plotting. But instead, all of us, every one of us, has a responsibility to speak truth in love. That we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. From whom... The whole body joined in it together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And so the building up to be strong, to be mature, to be growing in faith requires that we be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith and a righteousness that is not our own but a righteousness that is a gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. We've got to be careful how we build, make sure that we're building things of eternal value that come from a heart that loves God and it's not just outward performance but it's a group project. We need each other. We need every part doing its share. We need whatever joint supplies so that the body may be built up in love. And the church in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, they took advantage of the time of peace to be building one another up in love, to be encouraging and admonishing one another and comforting one another and strengthening one another. Every, everyone doing its part so the church was built up in love. And then the Fourth thing that we see about edification is that it's not just individual, but it's corporate. It's a group project. The building up of each one, each individual, requires the group, requires the church, requires the, the family, requires the community. But not only that, the church itself is being edified and being built up and being strengthened as every part does its share. And so not only... Does the New Testament use the building of a house as a metaphor for me building my Christian life? It also uses it for a metaphor of building the church. And that's probably what's in view in Acts chapter 9. The church is being edified. The church is being strengthened. The church is being matured. The, strength is, the church is growing in Christ's likeness. The church is being built up into a spiritual house, a spiritual 
fortification, the temple of the living God on the earth. And Peter, who is a key player in the passage that we read, Peter uses this metaphor, he uses this image in his letter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where we are coming to him a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and precious, Jesus the cornerstone, Jesus the foundation, not just of our individual lives, but of the church, our corporate lives as the body of Christ. He is the foundation, the cornerstone, rejected by the builders, but to God precious. Then verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 2, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so each individual, a living stone, being built into the body of Christ. So how is the body of Christ built up? How is it edified? How is the, the temple of the living God built as each individual living stone comes together dependent not just on the chief cornerstone, but dependent and interdependent on one another. And so edification is not just individual. It's a group project. It's not just a group project where I get my grade, but we are being built together. All these spiritual lives built on the foundation of Jesus are built together to build, to edify, to strengthen the church. And as these words were being written, you know, there was kind of an architectural uh, discovery, a new architectural uh, structure that was being discovered. And, and, and it was as a result of this architectural design, buildings, structures were able to be built taller and stronger and higher because of the development of the arch. An arch is built in such a way that every single stone is resting on every other stone. The arch is built together so that every stone leans on the stone beside it and the next one leans on the ones beside it so that all of the stones are, are dependent upon each other for strength, for stability, for security. And when they develop the arch and they put that on top of the foundation, they, they put arches around the bottom, they found that they could build a house, a building, a structure that was higher and that would be more stable and that was strong because every single stone was dependent on every other stone and that's the picture of the church, an interdependency. And so how is the church edified? How is the church built up? How is the church made strong and stable? Every single member is dependent on every single other member. We need what every joint supplies. We need the church. We need others to come and speak truth and love, to encourage, to admonish, to rebuke, to exhort to correct, to train. The teaching, we need the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. We need example. We need comfort. We need encouragement. We need admonition. And you know what? The Word of God gives us the resources to do all those things. 
Every word was breathed out by God and is sufficient. It's profitable for teaching what we ought to believe, for correcting, to tell us what we need to stop doing, to, to, to reprove and to train in righteousness that we might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The metaphor is not just our individual lives that will stand the storms of earth and the fires of God's judgment, but the building up of the church in love so that the church will not be blown away by every wind of doctrine, so that the church might be able to stand on the day of battle. God was gracious to the churches in Judea and Galilee and Samaria as Saul was moved out to Tarsus. There was a time of peace. And instead of becoming lazy and complacent, the church was edified. It was built up. Devoted to the apostles' teaching, building on that foundation that had been laid in Christ Jesus, that chief cornerstone, being careful how they built, and coming together in love, in the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. During that time of peace, the church was fortified, strengthened, built up, so they would be ready for the fights to come. We in the church in America, you know, we, we've experienced centuries of peace. Have we taken advantage of the time of peace? Have we taken advantage of that to be edified, to be fortified, to be strengthened? Or have we become fat and lazy? Just feasting off the green pastures, sipping the still waters, laying around, resting in our tranquility and our peace and security. Let us use these days to be edified, to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ, to be careful how we build, to, to focus on things that are eternal, to work together, to cooperate, recognizing that every single member in this group project is dependent on every single member and as we are built up, we are laid together in the spiritual house of the church where every brick is dependent on every other brick. That's how the church will be stable and secure when the battle comes. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that you give us a righteousness that is not our own and that we can build our lives on Jesus Christ and His righteousness and that we can build a life that will withstand the rain and the storms and the flood and the winds of this world as we live in enemy territory. And Lord, we thank you that by your grace we can, that we can build a life that will endure the fires and receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And Lord, we're thankful that we can build a life but recognize that we're dependent on others for edification, for strengthening, for maturing, for growing in faith. And Lord, we're thankful that you will build your church. 
that you are the rock. And we, like living stones, are added into a spiritual house against whom the gates of hell will not prevail. Lord, help us to take advantage of this relative time of peace to be built up, to be strengthened, to be fortified, to be ready for the battles that are to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to invite you to take your hymnal and turn to hymn 13.